In physics, I hear the name Fermi a lot. Fermi Lab, Fermion, Fermium. I thought I knew who Enrico Fermi was, but I didn't understand why he, among so many other great physicists, had so many things named after him. Today, I'll try to find out why Fermi is honored in this way. I'm Callie Cofield, and you're listening to the Physics Buzz Podcast. And I have a, uh, Fermi's collected works on myself, and in the introduction, this is the way the introduction of it reads. It says here, this is a student, Segray. Anyway, Segray says, he was the last universal physicist. And the tradition of the great men of the 19th century, when it was still possible to reach the highest summits, both in theory and experiment, and to dominate all fields of physics. That was Laurie M. Brown. He is a professor emeritus of physics and astronomy at Northwestern University. He's also a physics historian. Again, he's quoting a man named Emilio Segre, who is a Nobel Prize winner in physics and a former student of Enrico Fermi. Segre says Fermi was the last universal physicist. When I first heard that quote, I didn't quite know what it meant, but I thought perhaps it could explain why I hear Fermi's name so frequently. Enrico Fermi was born in Italy in 1901. He started his physics PhD training in the early 20s and made his first major contribution to the field of physics in 1926. He quickly joined the ranks of the great physicists of the time, including Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg, Paul Dirac, arguably some of the greatest physicists of all time. Years later, Fermi would also participate with many of those same physicists in the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb for the Allies in World War II. He died rather young at the age of 53. I wanted to know more about this idea that Fermi was a universal physicist, so I decided to ask Dr. David Kaiser. If you'll remember, I interviewed Dr. Kaiser a few weeks ago about his book, How the Hippies Saved Physics. Dr. Kaiser is a professor of physics and a physics historian at MIT. But I think Fermi made sort of lasting contributions even more widely across the whole span of physics than than most of his contemporaries. And it was often seen soon after his death um, that he, he seemed to some people at least to have been the last physicist who seemed to really know all of physics, um, which is a pretty bold statement to make, right? We have lots and lots of amazingly smart physicists today, and we have for many decades, but many people seem to conclude not long after Fermi's death that he had a kind of synoptic view of the entire field and made you know lasting contributions to to everything from you know quantum theory um, and nuclear physics, you know, many things named for him in nuclear physics to this day, uh, but also to things like hydrodynamics and you know shock waves and, and radiation pressure and and just a huge range of topics, uh, statistical mechanics, of course, uh, that that was broader even than many of his contemporaries, as great and lasting as those contributions were. And then, of course, as many people you know remember, he was probably the last great physicist to make. Sort of equally strong contributions in theory and experiment, and that just that just you know is hard to fathom these days. Uh, and yet he was he was absolutely world class in both in both domains. In fact, he kind of often blurred them you know together. He just it was just 
one, it was just physics for him, right? It wasn't theory versus experiment. Fermi lived at a time when the tree of physics didn't have as many branches as it does today. Fields like quantum mechanics and nuclear physics were just taking off. Today, physics has many subfields that are highly, highly specialized. It takes a good portion of a career to become an expert in any one of them. Fermi lived at probably the last moment that a physicist could be a universal physicist. But that's not to say that what Fermi did was easy. Fermi first established himself in the physics community with theoretical work. He came up with a mathematical description for the behavior of a newly discovered group of particles. That group includes quarks and electrons, which make up matter. So today, particles that make up stuff, stars and planets and people, they belong to a family of particles called fermions. Fermi went on to win a Nobel Prize in 1938, but this was for experimental work he did studying neutrons. He became a worldwide expert on neutrons and on the transformation of the atomic nucleus. In 1942, Fermi built the world's first nuclear reactor. It was in an athletic facility underneath the football field at the University of Chicago. Today, there are three nuclear reactors in the world named after Fermi. Fermi also discovered a mechanism called Fermi acceleration, which offers an explanation for how particles from violent astronomical events are accelerated to very high speeds out in space. For this reason, NASA named the Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope after him. Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory is more commonly known as Fermilab. It is home to the recently retired Tevatron, which up until the start of the LHC was the largest and most energetic accelerator in the world. Fermilab is an accelerator laboratory, but really, like Fermi himself, it is multi-talented. Scientists there study particle physics and high-energy physics, but also scientific computing, astrophysics, cosmology, nuclear physics, many other subjects. I thought that perhaps this versatility was the reason Fermilab's founders chose to name it after an equally versatile physicist. But Fermilab archivist Adrian Kolb says the name wasn't actually chosen by a physicist. In 1962, Congressman Frank Annunzio was part of the government team working to establish what would become Fermilab. He suggested naming it after Enrico Fermi, primarily because he wanted to highlight the positive contributions of Italian-Americans. He felt that the only other Italian-American with any international notoriety was Al Capone. Now, the physics community publicly stated its support for the name. But it's unclear if they would have chosen Fermi on their own. But whatever the case, Fermi is now preserved in American physics history in a cornfield outside Chicago. But our understanding of Fermi's legacy is not yet complete, because all of those contributions may not even be the primary reason that Fermi is remembered so dearly by so many physicists today. Besides being a great physicist, Fermi was also a great teacher. Here again is Dr. Kaiser. Uh, and, he was, and another part I think that helps with, his, with, with why we remember him this way is that he, he was an amazingly effective teacher, which wasn't always the case for, for others of that generation. 
So he was writing sort of cherished review articles that often functioned as early textbooks before they were kind of formal textbooks. That was a place you had to go to learn the stuff when it was new and kind of hot off the presses. He had a great knack for for pulling it together. Even if he hadn't invented every part of it, he could present it in a kind of um, uh, careful and, and clear way, make connections more clear than others might have done. So he introduced whole generations to, to whole areas of physics, even things that he hadn't sort of directly you know, derived himself. Uh, and then, you know, he was a great graduate mentor. About almost half a dozen of his PhD students went on to win the Nobel Prize, which is, if not a record in physics, and certainly very rare. I mean, he had a knack for sort of producing young physicists, so he, was, he had a great um, productivity that way, too. Lori Brown, who you heard at the beginning of this podcast, came to Northwestern University in 1950. And he would travel to the nearby University of Chicago to see Fermi give lectures and symposia and watch him participate in public talks. Brown says Fermi was a great teacher not only to his students but to his colleagues. He always demanded that they make their work understandable. And uh, I remember uh, there was one, one, one of the postdocs there was named uh, Marvin Goldberger, Murph Goldberger. He later became the president of Caltech and the director of the Institute for Advanced Study, and uh, he's still alive. Uh, and I remember he was reporting on some con- some lectures he'd heard from a, a man in Schwinger who had, uh, was was going, going to win the Nobel Prize with, together with Feynman, and he was trying to to explain to the seminar which Fermi was running. Uh, what Schwinger had said, and he didn't get beyond the very first line that he wrote on the uh, on the blackboard, because Fermi stopped him. He said, "Well, that is not clear to me. <laughs> Why did he write this down? It took a whole hour, you know, and he didn't." You know, so he, oh, next week, same thing happened. He got down to about the third or fourth line. Again, Fermi interrupted him. He wanted to explain better, uh, and so on. It went on about four weeks or five weeks. That was uh, his really insistence that everything be made very, very clear. Well, that's got to be very encouraging to a lot of people who are, because people are very scared to ask questions about physics, I think. They're afraid of of looking stupid. That's right. (laughs) No, he was never afraid to look stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Many people who knew him speak very highly about Fermi. They say he was a great guy to work with and a great guy to know. Others paint a more flawed picture of a control freak, someone who was obsessed with getting credit for as many discoveries as he could. It's possible that all of these things are true. But there is one critique of Fermi that I have an objection to, and that is the idea that Fermi was less of a genius than some of his colleagues because his greatest talent was seeing the bigger picture. Here again is Dr. Kaiser. There is a genius to, to synthesizing, presenting, and clarifying, um, and that there was a kind of, again, we might call it practical bent to Fermi's approach, but that was also extremely powerful, right? It wasn't, he wasn't plotting. He was, you know, working in a certain mode or a certain vein, 
It was he was not you know open to the kind of philosophical questions that many of the architects of quantum theory were very excited about. That didn't seem to resonate with Fermi at all. He was not you know taken up with this kind of mathematical beauty uh, or aesthetic kind of treatment that people like Dirac were so good at. I mean they were masters at it, or someone like Arthur Eddington in his younger days, something like that. Uh, but and yet Fermi had this I would say genius or at least very rare talent and skill to sort of see across domains. Shortly after Enrico Fermi's death in 1954, scientists identified a new chemical element, number 100 on the periodic table. They named it fermium, after Enrico Fermi. Only 12 other scientists have been given the honor of a spot on the periodic table. There's really no reason why Fermi's scientific legacy will ever be forgotten. It's etched permanently into our physics knowledge. But I hope people also remember what a brilliant teacher he was, and that what also made him a genius was that he was never afraid to look stupid. That's all for the Physics Buzz podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.